This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Anxiety on the Pantheon Podcast Network, and I'm your host, Mark. And today's guests teach me things, specifically symbolism in music. It's one of those things that I always feel everyone else gets more than I do. So I was beyond happy to have Alexander Haka, Danielle DePicciato, and Raven Chacon guide me through their experiences creating work heavy in symbolism. And we go beyond music into visual arts as well. Haka DePicciato have released a new album that's full of symbolic music, but the symbolism in Keepsakes is much more personal this time. Raven discusses his connection to John Cage, growing up listening to Navajo songs and heavy metal, and Alexander explains the three layers of symbolism. And all three guests tell me how far the symbolism can go, even extending to the intended audience. To give them all a follow on social media at Hakadepicciato and at RavenCHCN on Instagram, Pick up the music from Mute Records or on Bandcamp. Check out hakadepicciato.de for more info. Check out Raven's patchwork and stay up to date on new pieces at spiderwebsinthesky.com. Follow us at PerformanceANX on X and Instagram. Our pieces are available at performanceanx.threadless.com. And support our coffee habit at ko-fi.com slash performanceanxiety. And hopefully... You learned something new with Alexander Haka, Danielle DePicciato, and Raven Chacon on Performance Anxiety on the Pantheon Podcast Network. All right, so I want to thank you guys for, for hopping on with me. This is fantastic. Having us. So this is, I think, Danielle, this is, you're like my most frequent flyer. This is like your fourth appearance on the podcast. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Incredible. Yeah, Alexander, this is your your third, and and this is first for Raven. So this is awesome. So I got I got the full gamut here. We're really happy that Raven, you have time 
at least this way we can speak to you if we don't see each other. <laughs> yeah, it worked out. Yeah. yeah it's, uh... And I appreciate you getting up so early to do this. I know you're you're on a completely different time zone than me. So I, I thank you very much for that. It's not too bad. I'm, in, I'm actually in Florida right now. Oh, okay. So, uh, oh, good. Yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not too bad. Yeah. Oh, that's good. All right. All right. So I feel a little bit better about that, too. I thought it was going to be like eight o'clock in the morning. I'm like, oh, nah. this poor guy. <laughs> Florida. <laughs> what's, what's Florida like at the moment? It's, it's too hot. Yeah, it's just, uh, there's a res- it's a residency here. So my wife and I came, came down and we were trying to fit it into our schedules and, uh, this was the best week to do it. So it's, it's nice. It's cool. It's right on the beach. And, uh, oh, wow. Yeah. It's nice. Yeah. And they gave me a studio and gave me a keyboard and, uh, some things. So, uh, I wanted to talk to you. I, I know, uh, Hockey de Picciato has new work that's been released. And, uh, you know, I love having you guys on. But anybody who's listened to this has had know that I usually do a kind of a deep dive when I have a singular guest on or a band. And, when I have a good rapport with people and I really enjoy talking to them, I love having them on multiple times, but there's no point in doing a deep dive a second, third, fourth time. So what I would like, the way I'd like to start this out, we're going, we're going to be talking a lot about symbolism in art today, focusing mainly on music because that's what I mainly focus on in the podcast, but I do talk about other, all different types of art. But before we do that, I want to know more about Raven. We'll do a little, a mini dive into, into Raven and how you got to where you are since I have the opportunity and I have really been enjoying your work going back and, and checking it out. So I really want to know more about how you got into what you do. So let's start yeah. off this way. So you are, uh, you're Navajo and I, I'm always curious in different cultures and in different countries, the musical experience growing up, I mean, what were you listening to? Uh, what was, what were your parents listening to? What was going on as you were growing up that really got you into music? Yeah. Yeah. The, um, the first 10 years of my life, I grew up on the Navajo reservation where my grandparents still live and oh, wow. aunts and uncles. My, my mom is from out there and um, the music was still pretty limited. I mean, that was reaching out there. There was, of course, whatever was on the radio and uh, my grandpa, he's, he'd sing Navajo music, music all the time, make oh, up wow. songs, sing old songs. And uh, he's probably the first person I, I knew who I would consider a musician, you know, outside okay. of other people just singing maybe ceremonially. But Outside of that, I mean, the, I had a bunch of aunts and uncles. They're not, they're not actually not too much older than myself. And they, they would just listen to heavy metal all day. Oh, wow. You know, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Iron Maiden, Judas yes. Priest, all this stuff. So that I didn't listen. I didn't hear any classical music until we moved away to Albuquerque to the city. You know, I, that was the kind of most, uh, you know, maybe fastest music I'd heard, you know, or complex music, not saying that Navajo music isn't complex. It's definitely complex in its own way, but you know, polyphonic things happening. I mean, that's, that's okay. all I really listened to <laughs> <It's> <laughs> rock music. But later what, what ended up happening is when the family moved to, to Albuquerque, to the city, I had the opportunity to take piano lessons. Uh, my parents had met a, a woman who was studying at the university also. And she said, want to give your kids piano lessons for free. And, and my wow. mom said, you gotta, you gotta do this. Yeah. It's free. You know, it's, it's, <laughs> we don't have to pay for it. So, uh, <laughs> so I did that. I studied for like, uh, three years. Oh, wow. the piano. And, um, 
I, I don't know. I don't think I was very good at it, but what, I, what it did give me was the skills to read music and read notes and all of that. So I had an interest in that and I had a better understanding of other instruments from, from being able to do that. So I was really interested in, of course, you know, the electric guitar being that that was the only music I was listening to, but also, you know, saxophone, I wanted to learn all these other instruments. And so I think at a really young age, I started researching what those were, you know, and, you know, try to, I think a lot of young composers, especially, you know, living composers, they, they try to build a bass guitar when they're 14, you know, right. have a spring or something, or so I, I do things like that. And so, so there were kind of two things happening. There was, there was me becoming familiar with classical music or at least the notation around it. And, um, and then there was like making noise with this two by four with a, ba a spring on it and, and doing those kinds of things. And so there was, yeah, there was like a noise practice that I was developing as a young person. And then there was also, uh, believing that I had to, if I wanted to be a serious musician, I should go study other angle, this, you know, classical music, this notation music being, being a, you know, composer, capital C. And that, that was the trajectory I was on for a long time. I didn't, I didn't, uh, I was pretty naive, you know, or maybe somebody told me that was what I was supposed to do. And I had other interests, you know, I, I didn't think music was something I should go into that, that was any kind of living. So I actually was studying film for a little bit. Oh, wow. Uh, all of this then, you know, at some point I ended up moving to Los Angeles and going to Cal arts. So all of this was, this was an environment where they, they said, you can do all this stuff at the same time. You know, the classical thing, the noise thing, making art, making videos. And so there was no turning back at that point. I mean, I found others who were doing this and in New Mexico, yeah, there was a small scene of people, but there wasn't, there wasn't enough, I think, for me to, to find a community of my own to, to develop what I was doing. And so, um, yeah. When you, when you went to college, was that before or after your surf thrash band Los Subliminados? Oh, that was maybe ongoing. That was maybe, uh, that was a very early thing. That was, you know, we used to go and put on concerts in the desert out on the West side of Albuquerque. Oh, and so we, awesome. you know, there were a few of us who were interested in experimental music, but you know, we didn't really have the handles of, you know, what was going on. And, and a lot of, you know, these even touring bands weren't really coming through, or at least I wasn't aware of them. You know, right. it wasn't until later there was more venues for this kind of thing. And some of that in part due to myself leaving and then coming back and saying, Hey, I should, you know, compared to LA, I can rent a, a, a <laughs> warehouse here in Albuquerque and, you know, keep things going. Right. Right a new generation of people who were into this stuff. But when I was, when I was, you know, early twenties, late teens, there was, there was none of that. I couldn't find those people. So I had to get out of town. So and you also ended up having a, a fairly early exposure to John Cage, I believe. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that was, um, that's a funny story because the, the piano teacher, who was teaching us when we were kids, we, we'd never seen her do a gig. You know, she, we'd go to her house and we'd play. And it was already a couple of years in. She, she told my mom, she said, uh, bring the kids. I'm, I'm doing a concert at the university. And so we, we got, <laughs> we got dressed up. We went and, um, wait for the concert to start. She comes out on stage wearing a bathrobe, carrying these rubber duckies, <laughs> <and a> piano, <laughs> it's a piano on stage. And she throws like the rubber duckies into the piano and slams the lid shut, slams the, you know, the, the lid to the keys shut and does something else sings. And then, you know, we never really see her play. 
and I'm like, what is it? You know, what's going on here? What is this? Uh, I thought it was a joke. You know, I thought it was comedy. I didn't know what was going on. Um, Understandable. Yeah. Pe- people were laughing people, you know, and then it was huge applause and I, okay. You know, and I still, you know, still never really saw her play till years later. <laughs> and, um, but what happened was after the concert, there was this old, old man there, you know, and she introduced us, said, this is the composer of that piece. His name's John Cage. Wow. Said, okay. You know, I never thought anything of it, you know, being like uh, 10 years old or whatever, 11 years old. But years later, you know, this name kept coming back. I'd see it, you know, yeah. and the more I'd explore this kind of thing I was getting into that name kept coming up. And I said, I was like, I, I met this guy, you know, I, I know this guy, <laughs> he came to, he came to Albuquerque and <laughs> did his music. And so I think something in there, I mean, I, I'm not going to say I'm a, a, you know, huge John Cage uh, practitioner or anything like that. But I think the, the link being there that I had met this person, this person was being acknowledged for the work he had done and his name kept coming up. It, it was of some kind of importance that I, you know, I had some kind of, maybe handled there yeah. to, to keep referring back to. And, and it made me go and research more of what he was doing and what he had done. And, uh, you know, he passed away like only like a year after that, that was, that was in the wow. I don't know, late eighties or something. Oh, wow. Like, okay. Albuquerque. Yeah. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain here. You caught me just finishing up some editing on Getting Real with John and Beth. I want to share my first experience with Factor Meals for you. I think you'll find this interesting because I bet the same thing happens to you. I had just received my first shipment from Factor Meals the other day, and I was excited to try one of the prepared restaurant-quality meals for myself. Anyway, I was working away and noticed it was very late and it was my night to make dinner. I jumped up and headed to the kitchen, went to grab the ingredients for the dish I was going to make and realized I was missing a prime ingredient. Well, I could make a run to the store or I could make one of my new factor meals. (laughs) Actually, the choice was easy. I grabbed a cavatappi, an Italian-style pork ragu with garlic broccoli, heated the oven per instructions, and minutes later was enjoying a very delicious, nutritious, and dietitian approved meal. It really was everything Factor Meals said it would be. No prep, no mess meals. Factor Meals are 100% ready to heat and eat. Take it from me and head to factormeals.com slash pantheon50 and use the code pantheon50 to get 50% off. That's factormeals.com slash pantheon50 and use the code pantheon50 to get 50% off. Before you skip over this ad, give me one minute. Like most podcasts, I pick sponsors carefully and I use the products that advertise here. Pure Spectrum CBD is a product that has been really beneficial for me. They have a wide variety of great products that can be used on a daily or as needed basis. I've been using the tincture every day and it's been wonderful for easing anxiety. And I absolutely love the isolate. I use it instead of acetaminophen or ibuprofen and it's worked so well for the relief of aches and pains. They also have soaks, lotions, salves, gummies, and more, plus an entire line for fitness recovery. They even have products for your pets. See everything they offer at PureSpectrumCBD.com. And if you have questions, they're there to help. They helped me when I had no idea where to start. After you fill your cart, use code PERFORMANCEANX for 15% off your purchase. Pure Spectrum CBD. 
Pure Spectrum CBD, Pure Spectrum CBD. Oh, man, that's incredible. So he had this maybe subliminal effect on you. And so then you, you go to, to college and you're studying. What really drew you into the more experimental side of composition? Yeah, I mean, it was just, it was already making these experiments. Maybe there was a back, even though these these things don't really overlap, you know, it's rare that even today that my noise practice overlaps with the, the chamber music things. You know, I don't really go and run a, a bass clarinet through a distortion pedal, even though <laughs> maybe I do in my, in my private life. <laughs> but I, it, the, and the reason I don't is because I'm still exploring just how, how the hell the bass clarinet works. And, um, you know, I'm definitely not the, the kind of composer that's going to run this through a max patch or anything like that. Okay. Uh, on the other end of that, yeah, I think running voice through a, you know, noise rig or whatever, um, I don't know. I, I, I keep them very separate for, for reasons. I'm not even sure why. Yet. I think it's more the explore, exploration of the classical instruments though, is, is one of those reasons. And so, so I think though they still informed each other, I think there was still like, you know, through improvisation and through the noise side of things, it, it was shaping the kind of music that I wanted to hear and make. And so we're going back to the more kind of formal composition I, you know, I was, I was becoming familiar with these 20th century composers and then finding the kinds of things I wanted to do inside of that. But at the same time, you know, in, in those kinds of, uh, music programs, you're, you're expected to learn the, the canon of Western classical music and also the, the music theory around those things. Right. Yeah. And, and I think those are good skills for me to have. I mean, I, I was completely unfamiliar with them, but you know, having a language there to, to talk to other people who today perform my music, I think I, I definitely see the importance of that. All right. So let's get Alex and Danielle involved in this too. They're, uh, they've they been kind enough to join us. So let's, let's get them involved in the conversation a little bit. You know, all three of you guys really embrace the experimental side of music and it's it's wonderful and it's really opened my eyes to a lot of new sounds and a lot of new things when you create this the music in just and not i'm not talking about any specific i'm talking i guess maybe generally speaking do you find that you're creating art to symbolize something or does the does the symbol show itself after you started creating something is is there one way more often than the other or is it you just never know um alex and, and daniel let's let's uh let's get you in, involved on this i know it's kind of a broad question then, so. <laughs> yeah, that's, a, that's a broad question um symbolism is uh very dear to me and it's very dear to us i would say it's um it's very apparent in our music considering that uh, a symbol is a transcendent language a transcendent way to give meaning to things you can uh, you can talk you can you can uh, write a message a meaning into lyrics you can create a feeling with the music but the symbol transcends all all of that so uh, the, the combination the combination of uh sound with meaning is a symbol in itself that answer actually makes a lot more sense than the way i phrased the question <laughs> <laughs> and with me it's it's a little different um i grew up with classical music i learned classical music from the start and basically, after I left home, I spent many, many years trying to get away from it. 
which is really, really difficult because when you're trained classically, and I started learning piano when I was five or six and then violin when I was 10 and I had a teacher that was hitting me with a bow, you know, to, to really, you know, make me do whatever she wanted me <laughs> to emphasize her point. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it took me years to get away from everything sounding like Bach, uh, you know, it's like, it was a nightmare. I just couldn't get away from it. It was really difficult. And in a way it's kind of what I always try in general with when I do something is to break um, the concepts that I was taught to kind of find what's actually hidden within these concepts that are maybe being cemented closed. And uh, I can't really start liking something until I've broken all the rules and regulations and kind of found that what for me is like the essence oh, of something. And that essence within itself is a symbol or is a symbolic in a way. Okay. And I don't even necessarily know of what at the beginning maybe or at all but for me it's just an essence of something which expresses a lot but i can only do that if i've broken certain rules and regulations that our life is covered with right so that's what i always try to do when i'm writing music or if i'm doing art or if i'm writing or whatever is like to disintegrate everything so that kind of i, I see a different layer of things okay and that symbolic quite quickly so you, you can tell it's there you just maybe not exactly 100 sure of what it is yet yeah and i'm digging for it right and I can okay. only, Barton, for instance they have this sentence um nichts nichts ist alles kann or what is it was ist ist was nicht ist ist möglich nur was nicht ist ist möglich exactly what is is what is not is possible, is potentially possible. Ooh. Only what is not is potentially possible. Oh, I like that. I have to remember yeah. that, but probably in English. That's a very bad literal translation. <laughs> <laughs> but with a symbol also, in theory, a symbol has three layers. Who devised the symbol? Who is the symbol meant for and what means are utilized okay you know so that that's uh, in in theory of symbolism that's the uh, that's the three layers of of symbol okay and uh, you know like so um a traffic sign you know who device the trap uh, system the sweet uh, what is it the, the cops and uh <laughs> well not necessarily the, the meaning of the symbol was devised before the sim the traffic sign was devised no 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 but as the traffic sign the stop mm -hmm. sign okay right um so it it uh you know it's it was devised by the uh, authority to for the driver for the the people within traffic and it utilizes a very stark red color that symbolizes so that's like the that's the three layers of, of every every symbol okay and i want to make a disclaimer on the, with this i'm very bad at symbolism so i'm taking this opportunity as a learning experience to learn from the three of you so thank you i appreciate anything that you can you guys offer me is teaching me so uh, this is fantastic i'm thrilled to have have this opportunity raven what about you is is it 
often that you're creating things in order to symbolize something or you're finding the symbol as you're creating? Yeah. I mean, that's another, another thing about music, right? Is it's one of the few art forms, maybe it's the main one where it, it can just exist. It doesn't have to mean anything. Right. You know, I mean, it's, it's existed as long as people have existed singing, beat, making rhythms, and it doesn't necessarily need to mean anything. But I think of course, for a lot of us, there's a dissatisfaction with that sometimes. I mean, we all love music, you know, any kind of music, but to find the potential for it to do more, whether that's to carry a narrative, to tell a story or to, to relay some kind of, you know, representation of something else that is one might not see on the surface or hear on the surface of, of the music. And so, yeah, for me, I think that it, it's taken on different kinds of tactics to, to do that. You know, there's, and there's different layers to that too. There's the, the performance of it. There's the, the theater behind when we, when we get on stage and what kinds of um, consonances or dissonances might be there, you know, things that don't, you, you, you go on stage looking very unlike the music sounds has meaning. I think about all of the, the optics around the classical genre too. I, you know, when Danielle's saying to get escape classical music, it gets me thinking of um, just what it means that, uh, you know, there's a conductor on stage, you know, up on this podium and, you know, there's a bunch of people like a, like a congregation or something thinking this to the church, you know, we start thinking of, of those associations It starts. And then you, one has to start looking at themselves. It's like, what, what am I, you know, as a composer, am I supposed to have this, other power as well. Or, uh, you know, I, okay. I feel bad sometimes telling somebody, you know, you're playing that wrong. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what is that? But, and so there, there's, there's some symbolism in the, in the roles too, that we, that we carry just to practice the, the art form that we're engaged in. But for me, I think a lot of this, I mean, uh, still dealing with music, there's been an opportunity for me to put symbolism inside of the scores that I make. So working a lot with graphic notation, having these these scores or these actions or, or symbols represent multiple things inside of them um not only musical gestures but also maybe maybe there is a narrative in there maybe there is um other kinds of cultural meaning or other kinds of contradictions i think for me it's 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 dealing a lot with these same kind of musical ideas consonants dissonance counterpoint and how these things you know are are about conflict ultimately whether that's political conflict, whether it's other kinds of, uh, you know, social interactions that happen and finding ways for music to, to describe that or represent that. Is it harder to get that across when you're in a collaboration? Cause all of you have done solo work and collaborative work. And if you've got something in mind that you want to uh, express musically or in, in, in any other form of art, because you all do other forms of art as well. If you're involved in a collaboration, is it harder to stay true to the, to the symbolism, symbolism that you want to get out there? I'm not sure who wants um, to jump I mean, in. I'll, I'll, I'll just let anybody jump in who wants to do that one. I can start um, with us, for instance. It's really interesting because we come from different worlds and in that way, we have different forms of symbolism. We have different um, ways of going about symbolism, but at the same time, we have very many similar emotional connections with symbolism. So in that way, it's 
it's really great because I know that I'm never going to get something from Alex that I would do. And he would never get something from me that he would do. Right. But it's always something new. And in that way, because we have like this foundation of the same emotion for what we're looking, but we have different ways of going about it. And also different things that we find interesting within the realm. It's going to be something more than what I could do on my own, or it's something more than he could do on his own. And that always kind of gives us the feeling as if the music itself is part of the collaboration and has its own mind, which is, which makes it really magical. And it's always like, Every time we start something, I know it's going to be really difficult at times, but at the same time, I'm really curious at what the result will be because I have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> like I said, this point of the part of the, like the to, point of collaboration. Yeah, yeah. I'd like to, to pick it from pick it up from there because at at one point it is the music taking over the music, actually the piece actually being in charge and dictating what it wants, and that's that's the moment where. It, where it really gets interesting, I find, mm-hmm. where our egos and our shared or individual uh, intentions or um, have to step aside because the the music itself dictates what it what it needs, and we just serve, and that's that's basically um, that's like almost like a spiritual thing where we become the vessels for the the spirit, the inspiration. And we just serve the the outcome, the result, which is the piece. Oh, that's fascinating. Uh, so, and Raven, you've done some pretty incredible collaborations yourself. Do you find the same thing happening with Danielle and, and Alex in your work? Yeah, yeah, it's the same thing. I mean, just to go back to what Alex was saying uh, a little bit further back about this um, these things that are not possible, creating room for other things, I think was, was what I gathered from that. And, um, I think, you know, it went, the more people you add to this, it starts creating these other layers and, and maybe ma- filling those voids where things were not supposed to be possible. And whether that's something very obvious, like skill sets, like I don't have the skill set to do this. This other person doesn't have the things that I can offer. And, and somewhere in there, this, these things happen. But I think back to the topic of symbolism where you have these different, still these different viewpoints or ideas of what the piece is clashing or, or aligning in some way that creates even these other possibilities that neither collaborator saw until, until the piece was finished perhaps, or, or, you know, through the process. So that's, that seems to have happened a lot with some of the, the kind of, big collaborations that I did, especially with the group I was a part of post commodity was where a lot of times we really weren't on the same page. I feel, I mean, we knew the piece we wanted to make, we knew roughly what it was about, but sometimes we had much very, you know, very different opinions and world views about what it is we were trying to accomplish. And I think that that was a good thing. I think there was uh, tension inside of that, but I think what it allowed was different readings of the same piece from that audience, you know, that, yeah. that person who's receiving what it is we're making. So I think, you know, again, back to what Alex was saying is these kind of different parts, the, the government, uh, des- graphic designer <laughs> who works for the cops and, uh, <laughs> is one person. And then you have, you kind of, but that resulted from, uh, this need, this, this shared experience of accidents kept happening at that intersection. Right. 
you know, and then it broadens out to a big audience again. And I think when you add multiple people inside of that center mediation of, of designing the thing, I think that's when, when, yeah, you have, you have all these other things happen that were unplanned. And, and so, you know, it's very much like making a, you know, solo music or making music in a band. I mean, you're going to have all these other kinds of dynamics that might fit the project better or not. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain again with something every podcast listener and music junkie needs to hear. As I'm sure you can guess, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I also listen to a lot of music, so having high-quality headphones and earbuds are absolutely critical to my day. Oh, and I have numerous pairs. In fact, I have a junk drawer of used devices that have bitten the dust, so I've tried them all. Recently, I was sent a pair of earbuds by Raycon, and the first thing I noticed was the cost. Uh, Looks like their products are about half the price of other premium brands. Okay, that's cool. And the reviews seem pretty stellar. Okay, checks that box. So I got my Raycon Everyday Earbuds, a nice packaging to open, and what I immediately noticed were the pack of ear tips for sizing. Uh, I'll tell you, I have small ear canals. Uh, I know, a flaw. So to see choices for the best fit, uh, especially while exercising, oh yeah. And yes, they were immediately comfortable. Sound quality was great too. Plus I have three EQ options that I love because I like more bass in my music and less in the podcasts. Eight hours of playtime for the battery is great as well. Surround sound, noise canceling, and awareness mode all included. I think I'm in business and I just realized I've had them in all day. Like I said, super comfortable. Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Well, let's talk about uh, the, the new Hockey de Picciato album. There's a lot of symbolism with that. The entire concept is friendship, if I if I was if I'm remembering correctly. There's a lot of symbolism just in the the title, Keepsakes. When you were writing it, was it written as an album symbolizing friendship, or did that, like Danielle was saying, did you discover that as you were writing the songs? No, in this case, it was it was meant to be. During the pandemic, we realized that for us, the most important thing, besides our art and our each other, of course, is um, is our friends, and that nothing compares to them. <laughs> <laughs> and wow, um, nice. yeah, a lot of them have been passing, and um, you know, we couldn't see a lot for a long, long time. Yeah. We just were in Canada and saw some again for the first time in six years. Oh, Usually wow. we go over to North America every year. And so we were kind of like, we want to integrate that in our music and we want to write an album of gratitude to kind of celebrate what friendship is and dictate each song to a specific friend to kind of have them there with us because oh, thinking wow. of them while composing a song was kind of like beaming them into our studio, even if they weren't there in person. So in that way, it was quite symbolic. That's beautiful. And the album is a little different from the last few albums. And I think that it sounds like it, you know, purposefully done that way. You know, songs like 
and I, you did release a couple of the friends that you wrote songs for, like La Femme Sauvage, dedicated to Francois Cactus, Stereo Total. A drum kick without the bass drum. Two seminal bands, three languages, four books, five days a week at the newspaper, two dozen portraits made of wool, 36 years in Berlin, 57 times around the sun. But what is a number? It won't quite. And love stuff to Anita Lane. And I mean, honestly, though, my favorite is uh, I Love Mastodon and Song of Gratitude. Those two really, I, I love those. seems a little more intimate than the last few albums you have and i think that is symbolic of of the subject matter i think it was done amazingly well thank you thank you yeah whether it's before we were concerning ourselves with more generalized more universal topics as the decline of Western civilization, right. the end of the world, um, <laughs> <laughs> and, and other jolly topics. <laughs> this was, uh, you know, this is we, we were we were trying to evoke uh, certain characters within our music, which is also difficult because we we have to stay true to our own unique voice and these friends that we were thinking of when we wrote the music, they have, of course, they're very unique in particular own styles. Many of them are musicians. All of them are musicians. Except all fathers. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So the song of gratitude is dedicated to our fathers. And that song is kind of more our sound actually, or mainly our sound because our fathers weren't musicians. So we, it was like kind of the easiest one to make or to write because we could just do what we usually do. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. You know, because, because with every, every other piece, we had to stay true to that particular character and also stay true to our particular voice. So uh, to to build something, a narrative, or to build an an object, a sculpture, an oral sculpture out of these elements was uh, was quite the challenge. So speaking, okay, so challenging. So you mentioned that. That's that's something I wanted to ask you about. In a lot of experimental art and music with a heavy symbolism that that's written specifically to be symbolic of something, it tends to be longer pieces and like for example raven your inhale exhale piece it's just, it's amazing but each side is roughly 20 minutes long
rewrite something that's heavy in symbolism in a longer piece to let it develop is, I mean, is that why you don't see a whole lot of three minute pop songs <laughs> symbolizing a whole lot? So, um, <laughs> uh, so Raven, let's start off with you. Yeah, I think I think maybe you're asking is is it necessary, right? Is is it is it a requirement of um, yeah you know, certain certain symbols to to have a, a long duration? That's and, probably a better uh, way to put it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it get, it gets me th- thinking about that. Ultimately, a lot you know, a lot of us are talking about time in in what we do, and so if if a piece is longer, it's it's hard to ignore that that maybe is what is being spoken about, or at least okay. a, a reference of the the window of time and our, our place inside of that window. So if something is happening, I don't know if you have a piece of music that lasts for 10 years, you know, obviously <laughs> that's, that's about, some, I think that's about something probably. Right. right. <laughs> or, uh, and, uh, Hopefully. But, yeah. but, uh, 10 year long. But yeah, I mean, thing. I mean, I mean, there, there's a lot of, if, if it doesn't move much, if it's just, you know, this, this piece for 10 years, or it's, it's something, you know, like John Cage's piece back to cage with the, uh, I think that's in Germany, right? The, the organ that, uh, as slow as possible or as long uh, as possible. I think they just changed keys actually. Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> it changes in three years. <laughs> So, uh, when I was in, in Berlin, last time I saw Danielle and Alex, it was, there was a rest. So there was nothing <laughs> playing for a, a couple of years. I think we were going to go see it, a bunch of us. And, uh, it was, there was a quarter note rest or something happening <laughs> at that point. But, um, but no, you know, you know, there's a good, uh, question there in that. What is, what might a, uh, a short piece of music talk about that is, um, that can, can relay symbolism in, in such a, a small amount of time in a short amount of time. I wrote this piece recently. I wrote 13 pieces and they were for different friends, different colleagues. They're one page graphic scores. They're kind of miniatures. I suppose I, I wrote them for different indigenous women. One of them is for our, our shared friend, Laura Ortman. Nice. But, uh, I wrote another, uh, a piece for a composer named Barbara Crowall. And, um, these pieces are kind of portraitures I, I, of how I see their work, their, their biography, their relationships to their communities, to other artists. And I wanted to write about what I know of my friend, Barbara and her, her, um, the way she's navigated an art career, but also dealing with more kind of health issues, but also speaking to larger survivance and, and, uh, endurance of, of indigenous women. So this is a piece for playing four notes on the flute in succession and holding the tone as long as possible. Oh. So just blowing into the flute with one breath and letting that tone last as long as it can. And so the four, and the four times, one is just a normal breath. One is breathing through the flute while also singing. Another time is also while humming and another time is while hissing. Oh, and wow. so so all of these 13 scores, they, you know, they're portraitures. They, they have a lot of symbolism in them, a lot of meaning, a lot of uh, references to the people I'm writing them for, but they're all very short. I mean, especially that one. I mean, unless you're a, a phenomenal circular breather, you, you, this piece is over in about three minutes, but uh, the other works, I mean, even though they're confined to one page of instructions and drawings, they might last. One of them I think could last for a year, uh, depending how it's interpreted. Wow. But, um, 
I think for me, I think there's also the variableness of that. I mean, having a, uh, the agency to for the performer to decide this is only a one minute piece or this is a year long piece, the same piece. I think the agency alone is is symbolic about you know of something. So okay. I think I think the the duration itself holds a lot of meaning, has a lot of representation, oftentimes, and I, I think those are the those are the things I'm I'm interested in trying to to reconcile in my work right now. It is the intended audience also a factor in determining the length of something that's symbolic? I mean, that's another thing too. For the past six or seven years, I've been writing a few pieces. I, I was actually maybe the first one I've really started doing this with was a commission by the Kronos Quartet. And the piece is really just only for the people playing it. I only wrote it for, for the quartet that takes on this piece. in front of an audience i mean especially chronos yes yeah. <laughs> do a gig right yeah but, um but they did they commissioned a bunch of pieces and I, I was thinking you know i really want to write something just that's for the shared experience of the four people who are undertaking the learning of the piece and anything else that escapes that is is what the audience will hear so there's symbolism in the notation that only you would know if you were looking at the score which is shared i mean that that was part of their commissioning project was all the materials would be shared with the public or, you know, emerging quartets who wanted to learn these pieces as, as a learning repertoire. But, um, that's incredible. I think in some of these pieces, the audience is, is kind of secondary. It's, it's more just, you know, myself and these musicians who are learning the score to have this dialogue. Alex and Daniel, had, have you, well, my, my mind just went blank. Is the intended audience a factor in, in your writing at all? Yeah, certainly. But I think really, <laughs> uh, well, in performing it, definitely. Well, not I, in composing it. No, not in composing it. It's, it's okay. well, I think uh, creation of uh, anything, be it art or creation in general, is is not a time related uh, thing. For me, it is about now. Like creation happens now. It's not something that happened sometime in the past. You know, I don't right. care about the Big Bang theory. I think that that. <laughs> the whole world has been constantly created anew in this very moment. Therefore, I think that the length of a piece is just a means to put emphasis on a development, on, on an evolution with, within the piece. There is this concept of liminality that's like in an initiation, you have the time before the change happens and the time after the thing happens. Right. And that's something that is something in, that is generally something that happens in music. And I think very much in, in our music too, that we uh, create a development to a certain point where there happens a change. And that, that time in between where there is where the before is not apparent or not an influence anymore and 
the after has not started yet. That's that's a very interesting point in in creation and I think in music. Our last album, the one before, we called the Silver Threshold, and and that was this threshold idea that you stand in the doorway from between the time that was is behind you and the time that's that is about to start. Right. You know that moment, and and that is the magic moment where everything happens, and to put. Uh, to emphasize that moment, I think, I think it can happen in a very short time. You can do something very significant, and you can make a you can make a point, a statement that really makes clear what was before and what is the time after. You can do that in a you know in a very short piece, yes. but okay. uh, but it it certainly helps to uh, put the listener and also yourself into a state of awareness to prepare for that change, for that development, I think. I mean, basically, I think that what our music is about most of all is energy, is achieving a certain kind of energy. And it's like when, you know, I, I can only describe it like, for instance, when you have two dissonant sounds and you feel like something vibrating between those sounds, or when we do a lot of singing lately where we're doing harmonies, because when you really hit those notes and you have that, energy in between them or also for instance i play violin um it's the instrument that's closest to the voice and it's basically when it's really played really really cleanly um it starts vibrating the whole instrument starts vibrating and it vibrates into your throat and it's a pretty incredible effect and so we kind of always try to achieve that in each song to get some kind of vibration going that we can almost feel bodily and that can happen within a second, um, and it can be enough. And we have some songs that are like two, two or three minutes, I think, and that achieve that. And then we have some songs where they need to build up to achieve a different kind of energy, maybe a heavier energy, mm-hmm. and they're 20 minutes long. But that's kind of what we're always working at to get, like to get that vibration, that resonance where, it's resonance where you feel like you know your teeth are grinding or something (laughs) (laughs) is is the visual aspect of your compositions does that happen usually at the same time that you're composing pieces and i'm I'm thinking like american legend number one i was just watching that this morning like that is that all done at the same time or do you concentrate on the audio aspect and then the visual aspect vice versa or all at once so you so you're talking about the the performance of it i guess correct yes staging of it yeah no you know i think that was that was part of the composition and and that was you know sometimes there's there's pieces like that too where i'm not looking for an instrument because i like the sound or i even want the sound so i'm thinking more of what it looks like when I'm performing on that instrument. So uh, in that piece, there's, there's an instrument that's the chopping of wood. And I don't really think that is all that 
good of a sound, you know, yeah. <laughs> it sounds, it sounds like chopping wood and there's not, I mean, uh, this is uh, not putting contact mics or anything on it. It's just chopping wood. It's percussive act, but it, it, there's a lot of meaning inside of that single act. Right. I mean, it's, is it at what it's referencing in the score, which is talking about American history. Is it, is it talking about tearing down a house or building a house, you know, when you're chopping wood, right, okay. is, it, is it talking about building a fire and what is it, what's that fire for? Is it for uh, warmth or is it to, to burn down the house too, you know? <laughs> um, so, so all of that, it happens in that one chopping, that you know, one action. And, and so I've been putting more things like that into these scores. I guess they're, they're, you know, there's still a note for that hit for that percussive act, but, um, you know, it's, it's as much theater as it is a, a sonic gesture. Right. I have a question. Um, Raven, I saw your exhibition in the house. You, you showed, it was like drawn, a drawn notation. And I, it really kind of, I never, I didn't really understand it, but I thought it, I really stood in front of it for a long time. There was no real explanation within the exhibition. And so I was wondering if you could um, speak about that because there was no sound to it, right? There was, you know, I, I didn't get to make it over for that. That was, that was another COVID thing, you know, where <laughs> exhibitions were happening and artists didn't get to wow. go and zoom is inadequate for anything. I'm, it's unfortunate. I thought they were going to have a label for that. It's unfortunate they didn't, but, um, what that pe there was an audio component. There was supposed to be eight channels playing, whether they did that or not. I will never oh, really? know. That. But, uh, what it, what it is, is, um, uh, when I was at Standing Rock in 2016, I was making field recordings while I was there. And one of the things I, going back, it was actually a lot of the work I was doing when I was over in Berlin was going through those recordings. Like I was there for about 10 days, listening to what I had captured on my, my purple field recorder. And something that kept coming up was drones, surveillance drones that were flying around both from, uh, you know, the, uh, state police and the, the private security, but also from water protectors had their own counter drones. Oh, wow. And the funny thing about the, these motors on these drones, when they would spin at full speed, they, it would be a four forty. Wow. was what the, the, the pitch of oh, wow. <laughs> the drones are when they fly. So at the exhibition there that Danielle saw, there was, uh, it was supposed to be eight channels of different drones flying around. Oh, and, wow. Um, and there was a score made the, the piece is called storm pattern. And what that's referencing is a, is a style of Navajo weaving where there's a, a pattern in the middle and it emerges in all the different directions outward. And so what is shown on that is the different flight paths of the audio channels replicating oh. these drones flying around. Oh, it's, it's a bummer. They didn't provide more explanation. Is that the I feel like was that the drawing? Well, the drawing, yeah. So yeah. the drawing is actually a transcription of what you're hearing in the space. Okay. Oh, because wow. it looked beautiful. I mean, and I always, I was just thinking about this whole symbolic theme. You know, it was like I was like, wow, it looks like a hidden map to some incredible sound. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I thought it was a really actually. I thought it was interesting to show that and not hear it because it really kind of made my mind go. What is it? What is it? You know, and I mean, maybe they were, I mean, the whole thing was kind of, it was like a group show. So there were a lot of things hanging and um, maybe they were just playing all of the sounds after another or something. I don't know, but I know that Who I know. <laughs> yeah. um, but it was really beautiful as a visual 
symbolic kind of map, you know? And I thought it was really interesting. I was wondering if you do that in general. <laughs> in a way, I mean, I mean, to just off the, I mean, I haven't looked at that score in a while, but uh, just off the top of my head, there is some, some ambiguous symbols in that transcription. One of them would be the, um, a symbol for a trill, which is basically like a, like a wavy line, you know, yeah. on the piano. Um, but this is, this is this kind of vibration that's happening when you hear these drones going, but also it's referencing the, the, the river, the water that's being protected at standing rock. So there's, there's these kind of dual symbols that both look like musical symbols that are uh, describing what's happening when you hear the piece, but they're also replicating the landscape of the place that, that's being spoken about. Wow. So this kind of thing is something I've been working with for a while with, with compositions and using the actual standard music notation, the graphics uh, of these things to that are kind of set, you know, they're kind of a formal, they're you know, they now like uh, PNG files or whatever, you know, they're like little, like they, they, they're standardized now in finale and Sibelius and these music programs that, um, to me become representative of other, other, other things. They, be, they look like landscapes. They look like the sun. They look like, uh, rivers right. and mountains. Yeah. That's exactly what I felt. And I loved it. I have to say, I really do. And it reminded me a little okay. bit of shape note singing too. <laughs> I don't know. If you, oh yeah. Uh, sacred harp, sacred singing harp singing and mm -hmm. stuff, you know, it was like, yeah. Yeah. Funny thing also is that we, uh, when we coined the term cinematic drone for our music and you would Google that term cinematic drone, you would come up with drones, you know, so that's basically you had wow. a cinematic drone going on there. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's, that is so cool. I, I have to check that out because and that's very one of the things that drew me into your art, Raven. And is the like the and I hope I'm pronouncing this right. The Ella Yora piece that he's put out yeah, a few years ago. Ella Yora, yeah, yeah, Ella yeah. Yora. That fascinated me. That was so incredible. And that was a found cassette that you transcribed for voice, voice. voice. Yeah. Oh, voice. That's what it was. I, I listened to that and it, I was blown away. That was just incredible. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. That was, um, a tape I found on the, on the ground and it was a kind of like a court deposition or something or police interview. And, uh, it was, um, you know, the, it was, it was actually a little bit disturbing, but the, the crying that was happening by the person telling the stories and it was very musical in an odd way. And I just set myself to transcribing the crying only that's amazing. And gave that back to an opera opera singer to sing. That's a really early piece. I mean, that, that one was about that was about twenty years ago. That piece happened. Oh and, wow, that it's incredible. I, I listened to that and I just I, I was just transfixed on it. It was just it really touched me. That was just incredible. So thanks. I know you guys all have things to do and it's, it, it's been wonderful talking with you. I've learned a lot. I can't wait to actually go back and edit this one because you guys gave me so much information. I'm going to need to listen to this a second time to kind of absorb it all. But I want to find out, Alex and, and Danielle, you, your new album, Keepsakes, is out. Where can people find it? How can they follow you? Um, are, are you going to be supporting it with tour dates? What are the socials and, and purchase options? Okay, what you have to do is you go to your local record store 
because our albums now are on mute record and mute records are being distributed internationally. So the best thing you can possibly do is go to your local record store. If they don't have it, ask them to order it. And that's best for them, for you and for us. Else you can go to our Bandcamp page, which is www dot bandcamp slash hacke di picciotto that's where you can order all kinds of hard copies and also digital sorry i have a duck in my pocket <laughs> and we will also be touring we i'm gonna isolate that uh, we're gonna be touring through europe all fall and we're hoping 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 to be able to maybe go to the u.s and next spring we haven't played in the u.s for six years i think and we're hoping that it might work out next year. I know. I'm hoping to All come right. and see a show. Yeah. Yes. Ever, ever since Howard introduced us, I haven't been able to see you guys. Oh, yeah. We hope it'll work yeah. out next year. <laughs> so, all right, Raven, what are you working on? You're in Florida working on, on a pieces right now. Uh, what is coming up for you and how can people f- find your art and follow you and help support you? Yeah, let's see. I've got a, uh, I'm working on a new piece that's going to premiere at the Pearlman Art Center, which is a performing arts space they're building at Ground Zero, the World Trade Center. Wow. So wow. I'm writing a piece for the premiere of that art center for eight voices and hyperdirectional speakers. That's going to premiere in September. But also anything to plug, I, the book, the book of scores I was talking about, uh, it's called Forzi Kalesha. Uh, I put that out last year. So one can order that a few different places, art metropole or new documents. Uh, there's a place in Europe, sound home that has them as well. So, uh, yeah, that's a book of scores. Is there a, a, a website to check out or a social media con- that, that people can follow your work? Yeah, with? I'm, I'm on, in, I'm on Instagram, uh, just under my name, Raven Chacon. There's also a website, spider webs in the sky. It's my all my projects on there. I'm on it right now. There's band camps and things as well. Awesome. Well, guys, thank you so much for spending time with me for, for teaching me a lot, because like I said, I'm, I was, I'm really bad at this kind of stuff. So I really, really want to learn more about it. And I really do appreciate learning it from just incredible artists such as yourself. So thank you so much, Alex and Daniel. I look forward to having you guys on again. Raven, I would love to do another episode with you. Maybe we do a heavy metal episode or something.
What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would I shop? Would I shop? Would you kill? Yes. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.